Alright, welcome back everyone. This is Didactic Mind Episode 70. Uh, the Requiem on a Joint Strike Flying Piano. And uh, very warm welcome as always to all of my long-time readers from the site. Very warm welcome to all my long-time listeners on Podbean, uh, who have hopefully, some of them migrated over from SoundCloud from back in the day. Um, if you have not uh, done so already, please make sure that you subscribe to the site. That way you never miss a new upload. Make sure that you like, subscribe, uh, comment, and share this podcast whenever you get it. And, um, you know, let's get the word out because it's an interesting time to be alive. It's an interesting time to be fighting this spiritual war. And it is a spiritual war uh, against some very, very powerful enemies who want to see us all destroyed and damned and condemned to a life of misery and pain. And what our enemies don't seem to understand particularly well is that we're onto that game. And we don't really particularly care, at least those of us who <coughs> think in, in these terms, that we don't really particularly care what they think of us. We, we are not owned by them. We don't think the way that they think. And we're not interested in dealing with their way of looking at the world. Our way is very different. Our way is much more, I think, accurate because we're really much more interested in getting on with serving our God and doing His will. And the honors and praises of this world don't really matter to us quite so much. Now, that's an important attitude and an important distinction to have. Uh, particularly in this day and age when you could be cancelled for any reason whatsoever. Now, I've given all of you, or who read my site at least, uh, plenty of tools and tips and techniques to kind of deal with the threat of being cancelled. Uh, if you're not taking advantage of them right now, you are, if you'll pardon my saying, you are a fool. You need to understand that the cancel mob can come for you at any time. And if you are not resilient against it, they will destroy you. And you will spend a large part of your life on your knees begging to be let back in unless you take steps right now to make yourself anti-fragile. I've been over this repeatedly in the week's posts because of the whole Gina Carano situation for the last two weeks, in fact. I've talked extensively about how Gina Carano's um, response to the devil mouse has been in many ways a case study of how to deal with cancel culture and how we do seem to be approaching in some ways peak cancel culture. And I expect that a lot of the stupidity and nonsense that we're seeing around such things will start to dissipate because the woke mob hasn't quite yet run out of targets to destroy but they're turning on themselves. And that's where it gets interesting, because even lefty SJWs are now finding themselves in the crosshairs of the cancel mob. Um, and if you yourself want to avoid their fate, then you need to take proactive steps. I've outlined those proactive steps a number of times, and I'm going to outline them here again. Make sure you get yourself a VPN connection, as always. You can uh, click on the links in the description box, and that will take you to Surfshark's website, where you can get a VPN connection right now for a massive 81% off. Massive. Um, that's less, as I've said many times, less than the cup of 
bad Starbucks coffee. Well, bad and Starbucks is synonymous, so um, never mind. Uh, just bad coffee um, for you know every month. I mean, just forego one cup of crappy coffee every month, and you've got yourself a VPN connection that will stop. Uh, malware from tracking you will stop Google from knowing where you are. Uh, will change your location so that you cannot be tracked easily. I mean, let me give you an example. You know, this is my actual IP address right now. Um, here's my exact IP address, and I'm going to tell it to you in a moment. Um, this is exactly where you can find me if you're on the internet. Uh, just go look up this specific IP address and you'll be able to see exactly where I am or at least where, where it says I am. My IP address right now is 194.35.233.212 and if you want to trace that, um, here's where it says I am. <clears throat> What's well, my IP.com and uh, if you want to trace it, uh, all you have to do is go to, again, whatsmyip.com and it will tell you that right now I am in London. My zip code is EC2V, and uh, it'll even give you my latitude and longitude. Uh, longitude, and supposedly I am in or around Guildhall, not far away from Amazon's London office, and uh, somewhere not far away from Goldman Sachs's um, actual, you know, global office, uh, close to Liverpool Street Station, not far away from St Paul's Cathedral too. That's what it says. That's where it says I am. And that's nowhere near where I actually am. So if you try to find me through that IP address, you won't be able to. And there's a very good reason for that. The VPN connection masks my actual location and it masks, therefore, the ability of people to track me. If you're in any position where you are telling uncomfortable truths or you are shall we say, sailing the high seas to take advantage of um, the fun and joy of Disney Devil Mouse products from back before they became all uh, censorious and stupid, then you will need a VPN connection. So go to, go to Surfshark via the links in the description box, and like I said, get yourself a VPN connection for 81% off for two years. Um, in my opinion, there aren't too many other VPNs out there that can compete. There's only really one or two. Surfshark is quite simply the best value for money in the entire industry. So take advantage of it. Now, with respect to today's podcast, this is going to be a little bit different because normally I talk about subjects of philosophy and um, masculinity and stuff like that. Today I want to talk about... Um, something a bit different, and uh, one of my readers, before I forget, did in fact uh, request a podcast about rhetoric, written versus um, spoken rhetoric, and I, I haven't forgotten that, I will get around to it, it's just, um, you know, stupidly busy these days. Um, I've got a big project due in, well, tonight, which is done, fortunately, but you know, I've got another big one, uh, big deliverable on Thursday. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty busy these days, but uh, I haven't forgotten my weekly podcasts. I try to post once um, every day, uh, thereabouts, you know, just seven posts a week. And it's not easy, by the way, doing that, trust me. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Randall E6, I, haven't for I have not forgotten your request. I will get to it, and uh, 
Hopefully that will be by way of a domain query podcast uh, sometime later this week. So, um, as you can probably guess by the title of this podcast, Requiem on a Joint Strife Flying Piano, the reason why I am uh, why I use that phrase is very, very simple. Um, this week, we saw a news release, a fascinating one, in which a Forbes article uh, came out, uh, and it's by a chap named David Axe. And it, it makes for just absolutely amazing reading, and you know, quite astonishing reading, actually. Um, this is their uh, aerospace and defense um Correspondent for Forbes. And here's what it says. Uh, I'm, I'm summarizing. But basically, the first paragraph says that the U.S. Air Force's top officer wants the service to develop an affordable, lightweight fighter to replace hundreds of Cold War vintage F-16s and complement a small fleet of sophisticated, but costly and unreliable, stealth fighters. The result would be a high-low mix of expensive fifth-generation, in quotes, F-22s and F-35s and inexpensive quote-unquote, fifth-generation minus jets, explained Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles Brown, Jr. The rest of the article goes on to talk about the extreme unreliability of what I have taken to calling the Joint Strike Flying Piano. Now, I have been an extremely harsh critic of this program for years. You can find articles going back to about 2015 on my site, I think maybe maybe even a little earlier than that, talking about the F-35. Uh, I think it is one of the biggest mistakes of all time. It is, <clears throat> it is easily the dumbest weapons uh, procurement program of all time. It is, I mean, words cannot begin to describe how terrible, how dumb the entire idea was. Um, but to understand why this article from Forbes in particular is such a shocking uh, and astonishing article. You have to understand how and why the F-35 exists in the first place. And for that, we have to go a long, long way back in time, relatively speaking. Uh, there's a very good video before I continue on this subject by Bill Whittle. It's an afterburner episode from back when he was still at Pajamas Media talking about the F-35 um, Joint Strike Flying Piano and how it was really, it was a video that he released in the wake of um, some combat trials in which the F-35 went up against the F-16 that it was supposed to replace and the F-16 just waxed it blind. I mean, it completely destroyed it in aerial dogfighting. Close, close quarters aerial dogfighting just absolutely wiped it out. Now, why is this important? Because of what the F-35 is supposed to do. To understand where the F-35 comes from, you have to go back all the way to the Korean War. I'm serious. It, it, this is, this, this level of, the, the level of stupidity and incompetence and tactical and strategic malfeasance involved stretches all the way back to Korea. So, the Korean War was the first war in which, obviously, um, fighter, jet fighters were used on a large scale. Uh, this was not the first war in which jet fighters were used. Obviously, um, the ME-262, I think it was, uh, was deployed in, world, in the dying days, actually, of um, uh, World War II. The, what was it? The ME-262 Schwalbe, I think it was called. 
um, ME262. Uh, no, yeah, the ME, the Messer, the, the Messerschmitt ME262, the Schwalbe, uh, or, or Sturmvogel. Uh, and it was the very first operational jet powered fighter aircraft. Um, but the Germans were ahead of the game. And after the war, uh, a number of very high ranked German engineers and scientists came over to the US and helped America develop its jet fighter program. And those jet fighters, those nascent jet fighters, took to the skies in Korea just a few years after the end of World War II. And the, the, the first, like, mass production American jet fighter was the F-86 Sabre. Now, the F-86 was a very interesting aircraft. I mean, obviously it had that, uh, center-mounted, you know, uh, uh, nose intake, um, turbojet. But it had a huge wing. It had an enor absolutely enormous wing, a beautiful swept-back delta wing. And the, the presence of that big wing meant that it could turn on a dime. You know, by the standards of the day and even by today's standards, it was an extremely maneuverable aircraft. Um, now, there, are some there is quite a bit of debate about the actual kill ratio of American pilots in the Korean War. Uh, American sources have often claimed that the kill ratio in Korea was like 11 to 1. So basically, every for every American aircraft lost, the Americans shot down 11 North Korean or Chinese MiGs. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that. If you talk to the Russians and ask them what you know whether that's true, they'll laugh at you and they'll say, "No, that's ridiculous." The the, the ratio is more like two to three to one, um, and in some cases it was one to one. Um, because the, the, the North Koreans in particular were not that stupid. They actually understood how to use the MiG-15 and the MiG-17 when they came out and how to take advantage of them to the greatest extent possible. They actually were well trained in flying those MiGs and fighting, using them in the air against American jet fighters. But that being said, that is where, um, the American, the, the U.S. Air Force's um, kind of approach to fighting in the air was born. That is, that is where, um, dogfighting technique started to evolve. And into this picture, as Bill Whittle points out in his video, comes a man named John Boyd. Lieutenant Colonel, eventually, John Boyd. He was known by a number of different names, but he was a fighter pilot, and he is the greatest fighter pilot that America has ever produced, despite the fact that he never, ever achieved a single kill. He never had one kill to his name. And yet, he has been, in, in almost entirely on his own, the single most influential fighter pilot in all of human history. That is the impact of one man. He was known by many names at the time, um, throughout his career. I mean, he was known as, uh, Genghis John, uh, 42nd Boyd, uh, the Mad Colonel, um, or, you know, the, 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 yeah, the, the Mad Pilot or whatever, whatever it's called. But the name 42nd Boyd, uh, we'd consider it something kind of dirty today and flank, frankly, um, emasculating. But at the time, the reason he was called 42nd Boyd was because he had a running standing bet going with um, anyone that he flew against in the Air Force. Uh, any pilot, he would take on any pilot 
And he said that I will, uh, you can start, you know, in a perfect kill position on my six o'clock and I will have our positions reversed. I will be on your tail, ready to take you out with guns or missiles in 40 seconds or less. And if I lose that bet, I will give you $40 and take you out for a steak dinner. And John Boyd never, ever lost that bet. And he went up against dozens of pilots, the very best that the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps eventually had to offer. He went up against every one of them and he beat them all. The best pilot he ever fought in the air in, you know, a mock dogfight was actually a Marine Corps pilot. And John Boyd is the reason why we have a scientific approach to dogfighting today. John Boyd is the entire reason why the art of dogfighting, and it was considered an art, changed from an art into a science. It was his entire set of ideas and principles that built out our entire understanding of dogfighting today in the air. It's like all, pretty much every air force in the world that is advanced enough to have fighter jets uses tactical and strategic doctrine derived from John Boyd's insights. That is the level of impact this man had. You cannot get away from his genius, no matter how hard you try. In the modern world, in the, in the world of military aviation, you cannot get away from him. Now, John Boyd understood, despite having no formal training in mathematics whatsoever at the time, I mean, he did a bachelor's degree in economics, and by the way, he considered it a colossal waste of time. He, he uh, said repeatedly in, in his later career, um, studying economics was a complete waste of time. I wish I'd done something different. Uh, having done an undergraduate degree, half in economics and half in mathematics, I agree with him. It is a waste of time because most of what you learn in economics is garbage. Um, if you ever want to read, you know, if you ever want to learn what, how to understand economics properly, don't study it in university. Don't study it in high school. Just read, uh, anything by, well, pretty much anything by Ludwig von Mises or Friedrich Hayek, uh, or Murray Rothbard. I mean, yeah, okay, they go a bit far in some cases and the, the, some of their conclusions are a little hard to support and a little hard to stomach. But the reality is, that these men will give you a much better education in economics than any amount of neoclassical nonsense. But John Boyd came into the Air Force having no formal training in mathematics, and he understood why, instinctively, why dogfighting worked at certain speeds and not at others, why it was that the F-86 Sabres could turn really well at certain altitudes and certain speeds and not at others. He understood it instinctively. And then he began putting things together based on observation. He began to look at U.S. fighter aircraft and he, he tried to understand why it was that U.S. fighter aircraft weren't performing very well against their Russian and Chinese counterparts. Because remember, this was in Korea and then eventually Korea turned into Vietnam. And at the time, the American fighter um, planes were becoming heavier and stupider and slower and more costly and more complicated with every passing generation. So by the time you go from, you know, Korea in 1950, by the time you get to Vietnam in 1965, 
That's 15 years. I mean, that seems like a long time. It's really not. That's one generation of fighter jets removed. By the time you get to Vietnam, you go from these nimble little, you know, extremely maneuverable, extremely well-designed, focused, precise, highly targeted, highly capable aircraft like the F-86 Sabre and eventually the A-4 Skyhawk to these giant lumbering flying buses like the F-4 Phantom II and the F-105 Thunder Chief. Again, in Bill Whittle's video, you'll see it stated very eloquently. The F-105 Thunder Chief was known as the Smoking Thunderhog, um, and it was, or actually it was known as the Lead Sled, uh, rather. The F-4 was known as the, the, the Thunderhog. The F-105 was known as the Lead Sled. Why? Because it was so bloody heavy and so bloody stupid. You couldn't maneuver it at low speeds. It was supposed to be a fighter bomber, so it was, you know, it was a, a combination aircraft. And this is the problem, you know, basically a lot of, of, of Poindexter types came into the Defense Department, particularly under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. And this is where a lot of the problems in American military doctrine come from, actually. It's, you know, McNamara's era was much more destructive than most people realize. See, McNamara came from Ford, Ford Motor Corporation. And this was during a time when this whole idea of scientific management was very much in vogue. And by the way, this is, an, this is a way to understand why stupid ideas persist for a long time. This notion of scientific management is not new either. Um, you'll hear it promoted in business schools a lot, I should know. Um, and it has merit. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there's a lot of merit to the idea of evidence-based decision-making. That's a good thing. You make your decisions based on evidence. That's a very, very good thing. You don't just make it on the seat of your pants. But there are a lot of problems with having poindextery, pointy-headed, uh, freshly minted MBAs running around trying to wring out every last ounce of efficiency from a managerial process and thereby cutting costs and cutting budgets and you know, outsourcing everything and, and trying to come up with whiz-bang, technological, terrifying solutions for everything. It doesn't work very well in the real world. Again, I should know. I've been on the receiving end of more of that sort of crap than I care to, uh, than I care to mention. But McNamara came into the Defense Department and basically cleaned house. I mean, he was known as Mac the Knife. And he cut a lot of stupid programs, and that was a good thing. But he also cut a, a, a lot of good ones. And at the same time, he oversaw the introduction of a lot of really, really, really monumentally dumb ideas. Because he was so obsessed with saving costs, he came up with the brilliant idea that the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force should share one plane, and that we should standardize designs between the two services. Which, if you know anything about aviation, is phenomenally stupid. It's like only a graduate of a business school could have come up with an idea that terminally idiotic. Only an MBA could have come up with something so stupid. Here's why. If you have a naval carrier, you have a very short runway. Planes have to take off with afterburners howling, you know, screaming. They have to take off at full speed because the catapults launch them and then they have to fly on their own. And I mean, it's very, very dangerous work. And the deck of a Navy aircraft carrier is one of the most dangerous places on Earth. 
you need two engines. One in case, like two to get the, the plane home in case one engine fails. It's to guarantee or maximize survivability of the aircraft. You need a plane with an extremely strong undercarriage because of the incredible impacts that those planes generate when they land on the carrier decks. And you have to understand that when a carrier deck is pitching up and down, which it does in a rough sea, the, the sheer shock of landing on a deck can buckle um, an aircraft's landing gear if it's not constructed properly. You need a plane that can have its wings folded over and stored in underground, or not underground, in, in the belly of a ship. You need something that can be quickly and easily serviced and maintained in very difficult conditions. You need something where the spare parts have to be standardized so that you can get things moving as quickly as possible. You need lots and lots and lots of safety measures all around the aircraft. You need something that the, the crews can understand and maintain and service quickly. You need something that isn't overly complicated. You have all of these requirements to meet, which on land you don't have to worry about. Right? When you're, when you're flying and when you're taking off and landing on an airstrip on land, the impacts are much lower because the airstrip isn't pitching up and down. You're not coming in an extreme angle of attack to, to descend. You know, you're not like basically smashing the aircraft into the ground. You're bringing it in in a much gentler glide path, uh, into the, when you're, when you're trying to land something. That is why this idea is so terminally dumb. And unfortunately, this idea of Saving costs by standardizing everything has persisted throughout, was it now, 60 years of military doctrine. It's that effing stupid. This is the power of stupid ideas. They persist long after they should have died. Good ideas die very quickly. Stupid ideas live on and on and on and bloody on. Again, I mean... I'm happy to go on and on about the stupid ideas that I see in management schools all around me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm having a lot of fun doing what I do right now. But um, some of the dumb ideas that I'm seeing about corporate social responsibility and we should all be diverse and you know, we should all promote diversity and inclusion and I, oh God, I mean, I just, it makes me want to puke. But anyway. John Boyd saw all of this, and he saw and understood instinctively why the F-4 and the F-105 and the F-111 aardvark were failing. I mean, the F-111, the aardvark is a classic example of Mac the Knife's incompetence and stupidity and his, his tendency to fall in love with brilliant-sounding ideas. The F-111 was this huge, gigantic fighter-bomber. Um, you've probably seen it. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible aircraft, actually, as, as a... As a technical achievement, it's astonishing. It's this enormous, gigantic plane. And it's got uh, variable geometry wings. Like, you know, if you've, if you watch Top Gun, you know what I'm talking about. Wings that move backwards and forwards. So they start out, like, kind of stretched out and, and, you know, uh, a long, like, straight wing, uh, configuration. And then they sweep back into a delta wing configuration. And why is that important? Because, um, a big, wide wing provides lots of lift. A delta wing provides lots of maneuverability, so it allows you to get kind of the best of both worlds. Now, John Boyd actually had a chance to look at this, um, because, you know, this is the, this is a testament to the brilliance of the man. He went back and, um, he was, he was asked, um, to provide his opinion on whether or not this made any sense by the technical bods in the Air Force. And the thing is that he went and did his own bachelor's degree on his own at, in, a, in another university. Um, on his own time, 
to train himself in engineering. He actually did an engineering degree. He got a second degree in engineering on his own. Um, that, that is a testament to the drive and determination of the man to educate himself. He was a true autodidact in every sense of the word. But he looked at the, the idea and he basically said, well, it's a really cool idea, but it's too heavy and complicated and expensive to work. Because all the machinery needed to move the wings back and forth and coordinate with the, the flight controls and everything else, it was too complicated. It was, it was too expensive. But, again, the Defense Department said, well, we want this because it'll standardize our two planes. You know, and Air Force and Navy will be able to use the same plane, same airframe, same, you know, same everything. It'll be, it'll save loads of money. It actually, every time somebody from the DOD says this will save loads of money, run. Because it means that there's going to be massive cost overruns every single time. It's like, it's an ironclad rule of bureaucracy within the DOD. Everything that is designed to save money spends it. The F-35 is a freaking perfect example. And I'll get to that um, shortly. So Boyd looks at this and he says it's not going to work. The DOD ignores him. And guess what? A few years later, the DOD finally agrees this was a really stupid idea and we should never have done it. Um, and the F-111 as a Navy fighter bomber is finally cancelled. It's put to bed. Now, the, the, thing, the thing is, the, the funny thing is the F-111 actually went on to... Um, to do quite well as an Air Force fighter bomb because it's perfectly suited for the Air Force's needs, but it's absolutely hopeless for the Navy's needs. The Navy adapted the same ideas from the F-111 into the F-14 Tomcat. Now, regardless of whether you think that uh, Top Gun was a good movie or not, I actually, I think it's the greatest, it's the, it's the best bad movie ever made. Um, it's basically a recruiting poster for the, the US Navy. Uh, the F-14s look really cool in that movie. But the thing is, the F-14s were designed specifically to, to carry six of these giant AIM-60 um, Phoenix missiles. Uh, Phoenix? Yeah, I think it was Phoenix. Um, the, these huge, gigantic um, missiles. Uh, and they were supposed to carry six of them as, as long-range deterrents uh, against uh, both land and sea-bound fighters. Uh, designed to sink ships. So there were standoff weapons. They were designed to guard carriers, basically. Uh, and they needed a weapons platform. So that, you know, the, the U.S. Navy had the missile. They needed a weapons platform to carry it. Therefore, the F-15, uh, sorry, the F-14 came around. The thing is, the F-14, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true. I think it's, I think it was written in one of the two biographies of, um, John Boyd that I've read. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put the links to those in the description box. I think it was in The Mind of War. There's a second one that I read, um, where it described the F-14 as an underpowered bus. I don't know if that's true. I've never flown an F-14. I have no clue. But uh, I'm told that it was actually not a very good aircraft to fly. Again, I don't. I take no position on this issue. If some, if an F-14 pilot comes along and you know sledges me in the comments, hey, dude, it's, I'm just, I'm just repeating what I heard. I'm just repeating what I read, okay? So I, I take no position on this one, but just saying, okay? That's just what I read. But here's the thing. Already you can see the seeds of where the F-35 comes from. Already you can see why the F-35 is what it is. It's such a disaster of an airplane. Because the same idiotic ideas from the past continue to the present day. And the, it, it seems like the military establishment never learns. It takes... 
the introduction of a maverick military genius like John Boyd to come along and explain it. And here's how Boyd explained it. Remember what I said uh, uh, earlier about how Boyd kind of heuristically understood, instinctively saw why American aircraft were losing against Russian aircraft in dogfights. Well, there were a couple of reasons for this. Number one was because American aircraft were these like massively over-engineered uh, Rolex watches, basically. The F-105 and especially the F-4 Phantom, I mean, they were prime examples of just like the American obsession with big, beautiful technological solutions. The F-4 Phantom is just, I mean, it, it had massive amounts of engine thrust, yes. And you would think, actually, you would think that it was very maneuverable because it had this huge delta wing. It really wasn't. It, it, it was so heavy that despite having that big wing, it wasn't actually particularly maneuverable. And the second factor involved was this obsession in the U.S. military, uh, in the DOD itself, in particularly in the Air Force, uh, not so much the Navy, but much more the Air Force at the time, that you could shoot down everything using missiles. That the, the, the you know, the, the era of the dogfight was over. The World War II dogfighting, that didn't matter anymore. Missiles were the new thing because missiles came along in the 1950s and everybody's like, ooh, missiles will take out everything. Well, actually the brain you could, you could fit into the, the nose cone of a missile was pretty small and quite stupid. So there wasn't really a whole lot you could do. And the probability, the, the PK, the probability of kill of any given missile at the time was about 10%. Nine times out of 10, you shoot a missile at a target, it'll miss. So, Tell me again how missiles are supposed to win a war against a, uh, an aircraft piloted by a human being. Not going to happen. But that's what, the, that's what the defense establishment at the time thought. And the abysmal kill ratios in Vietnam reflected that. The 11 to 1, again, much disputed 11 to 1 kill ratio in Korea went down to two, 3 to 1, 2 to 1. It could even have been as bad as 1 to 1. Every American aircraft lost, uh, or every American, for every American aircraft lost, they shot down no more than one or two enemy North Vietnamese or Chinese MiGs. That's it. That's a terrible freaking ratio, particularly supposedly for the world's greatest and most powerful military. It was awful. So, John Boyd came along and looked at it, and he said, why are we losing and he came up with something called energy maneuverability theory. What he did, again, without any formal training in mathematics whatsoever, was observe the uh, energy state, that is to say the airspeed and angle of attack uh, and altitude of aircraft and their ability to maneuver at that speed. Like what was their turn rate? What was their yaw rate? What was their pitch rate? And he came up with an equation. Again, this is the na this is a testament to the genius of the man. He came up with it without formal training. And to test his theory, he stole time. Literally, he stole time on um, Air Force computers. Because remember, this was back in the days when you know the most powerful computers in the world had less computing, less processing power than your average smartwatch does today. Um, I have pocket calculators that are more powerful than those those uh, computers back then. Um, 
he stole time on Air Force computers to try to prove his theory. And he did. He proved it. He came up with a way of depicting the different energy uh, states at which different aircraft were the most maneuverable. And he used blue for American aircraft and red for uh, Soviet aircraft. And remember, this was way back before the days of PowerPoint. So if you wanted to demonstrate anything, you had to print it all on these very difficult and costly acetate slides. Um, and he, he had these transparencies, acetates made up, showing the altitudes and airspeeds at which each aircraft was the most maneuverable. Those slides were almost completely red. The Soviet air, the Soviet built aircraft built on much cruder design principles with much less money, designed to be handled in rough and, and brutal ways, won every engagement almost. Why? Because they weren't designed by idiots, for one thing. And for another, they weren't designed to be completely fragile. And for another, they weren't designed to waste huge amounts of money. I mean, say what you will about the Soviets. They actually understood the basics of weapon design very, very well. This is one of the reasons why, for instance, they did not get into the whole concept of VTOL aircraft. They tried it with, uh, I think it was the Yak-23, the Yakovlev-23, I think it was. Um, not the Frogfoot, um, something else. It was, uh, it was a VTOL aircraft, which they, they, they tested and they realized it was too stupid an idea and too expensive and too complicated to be viable. So they, they abandoned it. Unfortunately, um, neither the British nor the Americans bothered to, to do the same thing. But anyway, he came up with this energy maneuverability theory and he decided that he, I mean, he taught the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and eventually the Marine Corps how to win dogfights. He said, if your, you know, if, if your energy state when fighting a MiG-15 is, uh, if you're going to lose at the energy state any, anywhere below 500 knots, accelerate to 500 knots and then use your greater airspeed to outturn your enemy. And that, that's exactly what happened. That's the doctrine that they started using at Navy, at the U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School. What we know today as Top Gun. That's what they started using in the Air Force Academies. That's particularly what the Marine Corps started using when they created their aviation wing. I mean, I think they had it for a while, but they created it and they started using his doctrines because they made so much sense. The Marine Corps actually, I mean, again, because the Marines are like the frontline shock troops for the U.S. military, they've always been the most prepared for war. They've always been kind of um, the most rough and ready and willing to go into combat, they've had to be. They're a very small group of warriors and they have to be, you know, dedicated to, 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 to killing people and breaking things. That's what they do. And they've been royally screwed over by the U.S. Navy more times than anybody cares to count, particularly the Marines. That's why they have to, you know, travel the high seas in, in these dinky little assault carriers uh, because the Navy simply refuses to give them a proper... Um, set of nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carriers. So they have to operate the air wing uh, using VTOL aircraft. It, it's, I mean, as much as I slag the Marines for using these stupid, stupid, stupid Harriers and F-35Bs because of the, you know, the enormous weight and complexity involved of these aircraft, it's not really their fault. It's not. I've mean, I, I got to be kind to the Marines in this case. I like the Marines a lot. I have to be kind to them. It's not their bloody fault. It's the Navy's fault, actually, because of all the politics. So, 
Boyd's insights then were translated by many of his acolytes, what we know of today as the Fighter Mafia. The Fighter Mafia were a group of analysts, uh, military personnel, and defense contractors who hung around Boyd and were really, I mean, he was a maverick. He, his ideas were wildly unpopular because he was basically saying to, you know, Pentagon top brass, your ideas are idiotic. You don't know what you're talking about and you're going to get people killed. And he had no problem pissing off generals. Like he was legendary for this. Boyd would happily go in and he, like he used to brag about it. He's like, um, there is no general I can't piss off. And he would, that's the reason he never made the rank of general. He never made flag rank for that exact reason. Because he pissed off so many people um, simply by telling the truth. He was a truth seeker, a truth teller. And that cost him. It cost him enormously, actually, um, in the end. But he stayed true to the course. He stayed true to who he was. And he became an integral part of the reason why the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy uh, have great jets today. He stayed in the U.S. Air Force... And it was his insights uh, that drove the creation of the F-15. Think about that for a moment. The F-15 is the single most effective interceptor aircraft ever made. It's the single best air superiority fighter of all time. Why? It has a kill ratio, and I'm not making this up, of 104 to nothing. 104 kills to zero losses in combat. Most of those kills come from Israeli F-15s, um, IF-15s, taking on uh, Saudi-built, uh, or Saudi, uh, well, not Saudi, Arab, basically, um, Arab aircraft, and just destroying them outright. The F-15 was, an, was and is an absolutely astonishing aircraft. I mean, the, the rate of climb of that thing is mind-boggling. It, 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 like, the, the sheer power of those engines is astonishing. Um, but the thing is that the, the, this is where this, this, this stupid concept, the high-low mix started coming in. This is exactly where it happened. The Air Force then, you know, after all of the, 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 the nonsense that came from, um, Vietnam, where the, the Air Force used the F-4 Phantom and, uh, to some extent, no, I don't think, uh, the A-4 Skyhawk was, uh, used that much by the Air Force. Let me, let me check that actually. It's been a while since I looked at all this stuff. As you can tell, I was, and am still, um, a giant military nerd. Uh, no, it was a, yeah, that's right. The A-4 Skyhawk was a, a Navy and a Marine Corps aircraft. It was not really an Air Force aircraft. Um, yeah, so after all of that experience with the F-4 Phantom, uh, which was very expensive and very stupid um, and didn't do very well in the war in Vietnam, the Air Force decided upon this brilliant idea of a high-low mix. This idea that, uh, you know, there would be one super-duper incredible, all, you know, all-you-can-do fighter aircraft that would do everything. And then one eh, humble sort of dog's body aircraft that would take on all the multi-role boring missions. Well, the F-15 was supposed to be the high part of that high-low mix. There was funding available for another you know, single-seat, single-engine, um, fast aircraft. The Air Force didn't really want to make it. They were like, we just want to spend all of our money on the F-15 because it's a big, shiny, beautiful weapons program. It was John Boyd, Colonel Riccioni, 
Rich Riccioni and uh, Pierre Spray, among others, who forced the Air Force to fund the, the F-16, the tactical fighter pro, the, the tactical lightweight, was it tactical lightweight fighter? I think it was or something like that. That resulted in the F-16 Fighting Falcon, originally called the Viper. And here's the funny thing. The original F-16 that Riccioni, uh, Spray, and Boyd designed was actually way hotter, way faster, way better than the, the F-16 that we have today. Think about that for a moment. The F-16 that they originally designed was better than what we have today. The one that we have today is one of the best fighter aircraft ever. That's how good it was. That's how brilliant the design principle was. Why? Because Boyd and his acolytes stuck to what worked. They trimmed all the fat off of their, that aircraft. With the F-15, the F-16, and eventually the A-10, what did they do? They wanted, they, they learned the lessons from previous wars. So they said, we want 100% all-round 360 visibility. We want something with a big wing that can maneuver easily. We want something with powerful engines that can get us moving fast. We want something that uh, can carry an internally mounted gun because we learned the lesson from the F4, which originally didn't have a gun. It had to, it had to build a, like a bolt-on gun to, um, to, to, to dogfight because McDonald, um, uh, was supposed to produce a pure missile platform and that did not work out very well. They learned all of these lessons and they applied them and the Air Force fought them tooth and nail every single step of the way because they did not want this lightweight aircraft to survive. They wanted a big expensive aircraft that would do everything and, and look great and spend lots of money. And here's the problem. That's where this diseased mentality of spending lots of money comes from. So this is where this, this stupid idea of the high-low mix comes from. It, it's, it dates back all the way to the days of the F-15. I mean, this is the you know, mid-1970s we're talking. Fast forward another 10, 15 years, you come to the days of um, the F-22. And this is when, um, this is right after stealth technology has really taken off. Stealth technology does work. I mean, I've been a harsh critic of stealth technology, but I'll be the first to admit it actually does work under specific circumstances. You have to use it in the right ways. I will be the absolute first to tell you that stealth technology is effective. It does work. It does defeat things that's designed to defeat. But it's kind of hopeless in other aspects. So, you know, stealth is not a be-all and end-all. The F-22 was supposed to take the place of the F-15. It was supposed to be, again, this, this big, expensive, amazing fighter aircraft that would do everything and, and wow everyone. And then along came the F-35. And here's, you know, where we finally get to the F-35 and why it was such a dumb idea. The F-35 was supposed to be the low part of the high-low mix. It was supposed to do everything. It was supposed to integrate all of the uh, other services. It was supposed to be this cost-saving, um, you know, minimalist approach to having one airframe that would do everything for all three services, the Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. I mean, like I said earlier, the moment somebody from the DOD says it's going to save money, run, because it's going to be a, a colossal expense. It's just, they're just going to blow the budget out of the water. And that's exactly what happened. Because the lesson that... John Boyd and others learned from previous wars was that you cannot have a multi-mission fighter from the start. Instead, you have to start with a single-purpose vehicle. It has to do one thing really, 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 really well. And then you can look at what else it does well. But as long as it does that one thing incredibly well, 
It, that, that singular focus on that one aspect that it can do better than anything else, then you can start building on that. That's the mistake that Air Force designers have been making ever since. Uh, like military hardware designers have been making ever since. Because we don't have a John Boyd anymore to explain these things to us. We don't have someone of that caliber and intelligence and skill to tell us why we're doing something wrong and doing something stupid. And we're sorely lacking for that because we have now come to the point where the United States military has spent $1.7 trillion. That's $1.7 thousand billion dollars on an aircraft that can't climb, can't turn, can't run. It's hopeless in combat. It's incredibly high maintenance. I mean, for every hour that it spends in the air, apparently it requires 40 man hours on the ground of maintenance. Uh, the, the, there's a, there's an issue with the supersonic coating or the, the engines or something like that, where if you fly it at supersonic speeds, the engines wear out fast. So the Navy is basically saying, or was it the Air Force or the Navy? I think it was the Air Force. I could be wrong. The Air Force basically says, we can't fly it at supersonic speeds because that'll damage the stealth coating and damage the engine. Well, what was the point of designing a fighter that's supposed to be super cruise capable then? It's supposed to be able to cruise at Mach 1.6, but it can't do that. So what was the point? And what was the point of designing a stealthy fighter? Because now it's not stealthy. Um, the Marine Corps version is, the, the entire reason why the F-35 is such a failure is because the Marines demanded a VTOL version. They demanded a version that could take off and land vertically because that's what they need on their carriers. But in order to do that, I mean, you can't do this with a fighter aircraft. In order for uh, you, to, in, in order to accomplish VTOL, what what do you need? You need a big, like you need you need basically short wings. You need small wings because if you're taking off vertically, you cannot have a lot of downward push on the aircraft and the body of the aircraft. The smaller your wings are, the better off you are. If you look at every VTOL aircraft, like every VTOL fighter plane ever invented, they all have the same problem. They all have very tiny, stubby little wings. Look at the Russian design, look at the British Harrier jet, look at the um, F-35, obviously. They all have that exact same problem. They all have a very wide body and very stubby little wings, which means that while they can take off and land vertically, yes, that's true, they can't maneuver very well. They're quite hopeless, actually, at maneuvering. Um, but in order to accommodate that 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 capability, the designers of the F-35 had to build in a very, very, very complicated central lift fan that would basically blast um, and you know um, uh, a vectored plume of exhaust straight downwards, and it, like basically you'd have a hatch open up on top and a hatch open up on, on the bottom and the, the 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 tailpipe of the aircraft would point straight downwards and you have two vents of um, of exhaust gases blasting downwards. The problem is that apparently <laughs> in the original version um, the F-35 the, 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 the jet of exhaust gases coming out of the central fan was so hot it basically acted like a blowtorch an oxyacetylene torch that would um, uh, just melt straight through the decks of the carriers that it was supposed to land on. I mean, you couldn't make up a more ridiculous story than this, but that's what the Defense Department managed. So you now have a fighter that has been a colossal waste of money. How does the Air Force respond to this colossal waste of time and money? 
by going back to the exact same principles that failed it in the first place. By going back to the idea of a high-low mix. The F-22 was cancelled because the, under Secretary Robert Gates, um, Defense Secretary Robert Gates, he basically said the F-22 is too expensive. It's a $150 million or something, whatever it was, per plane. The F-15 these days is, I, I'm, I think it's less than $50 million a plane. Which is, by the way, vastly more expensive than it was when it, when it was created. But, you know, I mean, planes tend to grow more expensive and heavier and fatter over time. But the F-15 is still a damn good aircraft. You can still use it in combat today. And they still do use it in combat today. The F-15E Strike Eagle, um, is just an astonishing, uh, ground attack aircraft because it has, it unlocks the secondary ground attack capability of the F-15, which is such a maneuverable and powerful jet. You know, you can bomb the shit out of targets on the ground using that thing, and it will still be able to fight. Um, and then there's the F-15X Silent Eagle, apparently, that's coming along, uh, which is like covered in stealth coatings and, and has these big electronic baffles and uh, really cool tech designed to foil enemy radar. The best thing that you can say about the F-35, the best thing, in the best case scenario, is that because it's invisible to radar, and it, you know it has such a pathetically tiny internal weapons capacity. You can you can you can equip it with two missiles and two bombs or four missiles, and that's it. That's all you got. And by the way, it has a gun that can't fire straight. That, I mean, seriously, go look at my uh, site. Go look up the articles on the F-35. I've got it all chronicled there. The F-35's gun, which by the way, this is a this is a, a plane that was supposed to replace, among other things, the A-10. Which, I mean, that's a whole nother level of stupidity and ridiculousness right there. Has a gun that can't fire straight and has 150 round maximum capacity. Like, I mean, it, words fail me as to the stupidity of that. The A-10, <laughs> the gun on an A-10, <laughs> the GAU-8 Avenger gun, if you actually took the gun out of the plane, and you stood it next to a VW Beetle. The gun is bigger than the car. The A-10 is probably the first plane ever designed around a gun. That's how bloody terrifying that thing is. It was called the White Death by the Iraqi National Guard, the Republican Guard, sorry. Um, why? Because every time it came along, it would be flying or, you know, at, at fairly low altitude, and it would just pepper every Iraqi tank that it came across with these 30 millimeter uh, depleted uranium shells. If you don't know how big a 30 millimeter slug is, basically stick your fingers about three centimeters apart. That's um, a little over an inch and inch and a quarter, an inch and a third apart, right? Now imagine a slug uh, that wide and probably what 10 to 15 centimeters long, maybe a little bit bigger than that. Made, tipped with depleted uranium, so extraordinarily hard, impacting on your car and shredding everything around you. That's what that's like. The F-35 is supposed to replace that. Yeah, right. Never happened. Couldn't happen. The entire idea was a bad joke. What we are, what we are looking at right now is the greatest military failure in, a, in world history. And it's not a, it's not a, uh, a military defeat at the hands of a superior enemy. It's a military defeat caused by military planners who 
fell in love with the idea of spending money. And that's all the F-35 is designed to do. It's designed to spend money, enormous amounts, gigantic amounts of money. And it succeeded brilliantly at that. It has succeeded perfectly at spending $1.7 trillion of taxpayer money, which we'll never get back. I, I say we because part of my tax dollars when I was living in the States contributed to that flying shit heap. I mean, and the thing is, the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps have not learned the lessons. They're still going back to the same old things. The The article from Forbes closes with this idea that 40 years from now, we'll, we'll still be flying, the U.S. Air Force will still be flying 60-year-old or 70-year-old F-16s, which, by the way, are a damn good airplane. Uh, and they'll still be talking about, oh, maybe we should get a high-low, uh, a low-quality fighter. To, like, it's just, guys, just design a new fighter from the ground up. Start with a very simple concept. Just start with a simple single-engine fighter designed to be very fast and very maneuverable. Get rid of the stealth crap. You don't need it. Fly-by-wire controls, relaxed you know, position for the pilot, lots of visibility, great avionics, great um, electronics, uh, lots of electronic intelligence and electronic warfare capabilities. Make it unhackable. Keep the design and the principles solid and simple and learn from John Boyd. That's all you need to do. And they're not going to do that. This is why the United States military will lose its next major conflict against a power that knows how to stand up to it. The Russians already have fifth-generation fighters in their service, the Su-57. Now, the Su-57 is underpowered, but it's not going to stay that way for very long. The Chinese have ripped off an F-22. I mean, if you look at their, their, their J-27, I think, the J-27 Chengdu, it looks like somebody described an F-22 an F down the phone and then <laughs> translated, you know, from, from English to Chinese, literally. It's that ugly-looking a fighter. It's not particularly effective. It's not particularly pretty, but they're going to learn. And unlike the Americans, the Russians and the Chinese understand the limitations of stealth technology and they've already counteracted them with long wave radars coupled with really powerful computer algorithms designed to separate out all the noise so they can detect American stealth fighters, you know, quote unquote stealth. They already know they're coming. They're protected, which means America has lost its edge in stealth technology and in fighter technology. All because it refused to listen to John Boyd and everything that he said about how to design aircraft and weapons properly. And I haven't even gotten into all the great other stuff that John Boyd did. I haven't even talked about the Pentagon Wars, um, which you can read about or you can watch the film. I've got the book in the description box later on. There are two books about him, and you know, I've got like a minute left. There are two books about him that you have to read. One is called Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art of war. And the other is called The Mind of War by uh, Grant Hammond, I think it was. Both are amazing books. Both are well worth reading. The first one is an actual biography. Um, the second is more of a philosophical treatise on the nature of war. You've got to read them both. They're just fantastic books. And you got to read, uh, well, go through all of my articles on, on the fighter mafia and uh, just search for the fighter mafia, search for the F-35, and you'll know everything you need to know. But uh, the one idea I want you to take away from tonight uh, is that stupid ideas last for a very, very long time, and we all end up paying the price. That's it for me. I'm right out of time. 
time. This has been Didactic Mind, Episode 70, Requiem on a Joint Strike Flying Piano. Uh, don't forget to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And I will see you on the next one. This is Didact, signing off.